You are listening to the Small Liquor Hunting Podcast, the hunting podcast that is free of advertisements, bought and paid for opinions, and minutes and minutes of sponsorships. If that's what you want, there's a plethora of other podcasts out there. Here, we're going to talk openly, we're going to talk honestly, and we're going to live in the real world, free of sponsorships and paid for advertisements and opinions that are governed and dictated by them. That sounds interesting. Stay tuned for this episode of the Smalley Grounding Podcast. Hey guys, let's get this episode started. We're going to kick off right away, basically about the topic at hand. I'm going to try to uh, minimize the off-topic discussions or rancing, and I do have some closing uh, discussions that don't have to do with food plots, but I promised the next episode I was going to go through some food plot failures, and these are both conceptually and actually, and what I mean by that is many of the food plot failures that people communicate to me or I see firsthand on their properties or when they communicate with me is not always, you know, a failure of the food plot to grow or thrive, it's a failure of executing a proper food plotting plan, um, food plotting architecture, if you will. Um, That's a term that a lot of people have used over the years. Um, It's nothing new, and it's nothing that I'm going to christen as my own as well, but there is a a thought process, and there's, there's definitely something to be said for really thinking through and designing the layout of your food plots to cohesively um, set forth the plan or to uh, intensify or enhance or to support what your overall flow or travel flow of your property you want it to be, but then also what the property already is designed to be. You know, God created every single piece of ground differently you know, not all deer are going to move in a similar pattern on every single property, given the terrain, given the features, given the edges, given the, you know, maybe the plant species or types or riverways or railroad crossings or just roadways, houses, all of those things can change and will change um, the flow or the travel tendencies of deer across the property. Um, I was actually up on a property or down, I guess, on a property um, not too long ago where Entrance and exit is extremely tough for this gentleman. Um, and that you have to kind of think that, think about that when designing your food plots, especially in a situation where we're talking about a lot of mid to late season hunting, this gentleman, given what he does for a job or, or line of work, he's not going to be able to hunt a lot of early season stuff. So we're talking about a lot of firearm hunting, um, into the end, which means we can stretch out there a little bit more, which means we're probably going to be hunting the food sources more, especially during those time frames when the does are the target. We're hunting the does to hunt the bucks. We're not necessarily hunting travel corridors or seeking patterns. We're hunting the food because we're on the tail end of the rut. They're going to be hitting where the does are. And then the late season, we're going to be on the food with deer trying to supplement their nutrition now that they've kind of been through a little bit of a rough phase um, from the rut itself. So, that is something that I think a lot of people don't consider is one, the timing of your predominant hunting, the layout of your property, but all of these things can make or break if 
even where or how you design your food plots are going to be a success in and of themselves. But let's first kind of back up. These are so that's a, from a design and a a thought process basis for the first m- the majority of this episode and we may not even get into me unpacking what I just, you know, kind of teased with a little bit, but just keep it in the back of your mind especially if you're starting with a blank slate or you're restarting a property, you have to think, okay, if I put the food in here and in this way and in this style, how is that going to impact the movement, the usage, and the huntability of this property? Am I enhancing any of those things? And if you're not thinking about those things and you're just shoving food into the easiest place to put food or the spot that seems to be the best without actually thinking it through, asking every possible why question that you can, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're going to end up regretting it in the long run and you're going to be two or three years down the road wishing you wouldn't have done what you did. So just keep that in mind. But let's talk about some of the food plot failures that we all face. The first one, the number one, and to be honest with you, there's really nothing that I can say that's going to help this, and that is weather issues. We cannot control when we have a really wet spring and we have a really dry spring or a really wet summer, dry summer, vice versa, whatever timing of the year it is. We cannot control that. Um Pops and his new land that is a floodplain river bottom, we're going to be trying to put a food plot in there, but we already know going into it, once we get the spot cleared, once we get it prepped, and there's going to be some years where it's going to be an atrocious failure. Um, We're going to have to really figure out what seems to survive the most out there, what does well. Um, We're probably not going to throw a ton of really expensive food plots out there into the ground, just knowing that one really massive um, storm front could just absolutely put that food plot, you know, six inches underwater. Um, and for an extended period of time, I have a feeling. I have a feeling cereal rye is going to become our best friend to where, when floodwaters, you know, resi- uh, uh, Oh my gosh! I just had a total brain shutoff moment when the flooding waters subside. We're going to be able to go in there and, and, and restart that food plot by throwing a bunch of cereal rye down. I have a feeling that's going to be a tactic of our own. Now, there are some clovers that can really stand up to some intermittent flooding, and we might have to go that route and things. But, you know, this is something that if you're going to get into food plots, you just have to accept that you're going to have weather issues. Now, there are things that you can do to assist in this. Now, too much water there's not a ton you can do besides going the massive agricultural route and actually tiling or putting, you know, drainage lines in or, or I know some guys that have actually dug retention areas along their food plots, um, just to keep, but those are guys that have perpetual issues with water. And that is a consideration to do. And, and there's a really valid argument for that. It'll at least enhance and encourage. And, and Pops and I may incorporate some of that on the, his place, uh, depending on when we get in there and actually begin to see it and how it lays out and such. So we got to have logging done there first. But, you know, too little rain, there are some things that you can do. You know, those of us that do a lot of tillage practices start with a very dry, um, barren seedbed of dirt. We can have real big issues if we get too little rain during the growing process until those plants, you know, are three, four, five, and six weeks mature, most of them, um, because it'll actually bake the surface and it'll, it'll kill it. And that's where the no-till practices, um, I know I don't have a drill 
Otherwise, I would be a no-tiller. Um, I do broadcasting, and I do such like that, but, you know, um, this is why it's become very popular to always incorporate cereal rye. That way, in the spring, you always have stuff starting to come up. A lot of guys are going to a very buckwheat-centric. Guys like me that have either just a roller crimper, a roller, or use chemical to, to terminate, and they don't have a drill. Um, buckwheat is a very good um, spring food plot in order to have growth. It, it, it actually shades the soil, keeps the soil temperature up higher. And if you've had any, um, if you've listened to any podcasts about people, you know, Grant Woods talks about this. When I had Al James on the episode, we talked about it. But just having something there, even if it's standing dead buckwheat or standing dead rye and straw and the, the dead matter that has fallen, which is then going to be reincorporated back into the soil, it is actually helping keep the soil temperatures. It's like a shield. So when you don't have a lot of rain, it's actually keeping it cooler. It's holding what moisture is there in, and it's allowing your seeds that then have fallen down through that debris and that thatch to then be able to grow and not be absolutely baked like an oven. So that is one thing to incorporate it. You know, timing of plantings also can be a food plot failure issue. Um, And we use failure, relatively speaking. I've shared lately that... I need to start planning my plots that I really want bulb production from my brassicas. I really need to get into the habit of planting those much, much earlier. Um, Even if I circle back around with the leafy non-tuber style, you know, my daikon radishes and my purple top turnips are kind of my two centerpieces of any of the mixes that I use when it comes to brassica plots. Those need much more time in order to put on the mass in the in the bulb production that I need compared to the kale or the rape and such like that. They don't need the amount of time in order to be palatable and attractive to the deer per se. So planting too early can be an issue. If I really want to get tubers, I need to plant or planting too late um, can be an issue. Planting too early can also be an issue. You know, if you want beans to be green into the month of October, you really got to try to risk planting them later. Then, of course, you run into the the opportunity of it being too dry and too too hot in the summer months, and then they don't survive or thrive. So there's always these things about improper timing of planting. So you got to make sure that you know the germination, um, or not the germination, but the maturation, the maturity time span, which all of your plant types need to grow to maturity, but then also some of those, what do they need in order to produce tubes, uh, bulbs, things of that nature. You got to keep those things in mind. And that's one, that's a big common um, failure is the timing of plantings and such. Um, also, one of the most common Um, failures that I know a lot of people struggle with is getting a clover plot going. And I know some of us, it's like the easiest thing in the world, but that's because we've understood it and we we understand it. But if you just do a solid planting of clover in the fall, you're going to have the hardest time establishing that into the spring the next year. And that is because that plant, young clover, needs time to mature and really kind of lay its root and get its structure going. And if it's the only thing there, and if you have a decent deer number or deer density, you're going to have issues with that being annihilated and consumed and not bounce back in the next spring the way it would if you were to plant clover alongside of other things. Even if you do a three to four pound planting 
um, per acre, which, you know, most clovers range in that six to nine pound per acre uh, range of uh, seed density to, to per acre rate. So if you do like a two to four pound addition to, say, a brassica blend that you make or you buy, or maybe a cereal grain mix, or maybe you do 200 to 300 pounds of cereal rye, and you throw the clover in there with it, that's going to be, I love getting my clover plots started with cereal grains, especially cereal rye, because the good thing is, in my area, your your oats and your wheat are going to most likely die, and they're not going to come back up the next spring because of winter kill-off. However, in the spring, that cereal rye is one of the first things to start growing. Here we are. It is freezing temperatures outside March 27th when I'm recording this in northern Indiana. And there is cereal rye already starting to grow and is at least an inch tall on many um, fields here that farmers use it as a cover crop. And I have it on my place, and it's starting to grow as well. So it's one of the first things to green up. It's a great food source right out of winter before winter actually is even over and springtime is here. Those deer, the turkey, and animals, um, even animals that you don't want to feed, like the groundhogs that annihilate your food plots. But cereal cereal rye will come up. It'll green up. And then the clover will also green up usually around the same time, but some of it. But usually it'll actually follow the cereal rye by maybe a week or two which is a good thing because it's shorter, it's still not as robust, and the cereal grain just starts taking off the cereal rye, allowing it to take some of the pressure off of the clover. And this is the perfect time. This is about the end of when I would be frost seeding, but you know how I said we had three to four pounds of, of, of clover seed down on these plots. In that case, now I'm going back and I am planting, uh, overseeding, frost seeding, as they call it, I'm going to go over and frost seed those those plots or the plots that I want to have a thick, lush um, clover plot that already kind of got started the year prior. This is the time frame where I'm going out and I'm, I'm throwing down at least another four to five pounds per acre of uh, my clover mix that I want, that I decide. You don't need a big box bag um, or a, a buck, on the bo- buck on the bag brand or anything like that. I trust real world. I've also went and designed my own or went on to HancockSeed.com. I went to the local grain elevator and just picked up whatever clovers they had. I get my crimson clover in bulk usually locally. So, And I'm always supplementing that into some of my plots and things. So it doesn't matter. The brand does not matter. The seed type does matter. Which, let's get into that next. It's the next bullet point on my list. And that is bad seed. Now... A lot of people are going to think, Ty's going to get into this rant about bad seed connected to brands. Nope. Any seed company out there, any seed company out there has access to good seed and they have access to bad seed. And when I say bad seed, I don't necessarily mean it has a low germination rate. However, that could be deemed a bad seed. But what I mean is they're putting bad seed in their mixes. I'm going to be honest with you. Unless I'm trying to plant a roadway that I don't necessarily want to feed the deer. I just want to discourage other things to grow or just have something on it. Um, deer nutrition and deer attractiveness is, is is not part of my equation. I actually have a little hillside that's about four to five feet high on the end of my uh, yard here out by the roadway that I can't get stuff to grow because it dries out so fast and things. I'm actually going to try ryegrass out there for that sake to have a spot that doesn't just grow dirt and weeds. Um, and I do mow it and stuff, but ryegrass in food plot seeds 
has no business being in there. I don't care. I have not been convinced by a deer biologist or somebody that is far more knowledgeable than me, which is plenty of people. Rye grass has no business in food plot seed mixes. Doesn't. It is a cheap filler, and I think you're going to see more. It's already out there in a lot of stuff, but you're going to see it more and more, and it's because it'll grow almost anywhere. It greens up and looks attractive to our human eye, so we think we did something good and it's growing something, but yet the nutritional levels of it, if you, and, and I challenge you, truly send in samples of your ryegrass and then compare it with other th- compare it with even weeds. I'd rather have ragweed growing on my property than most of my food plot seeds, but definitely more than ryegrass. I'd rather have thistle <laughs> honestly than ryegrass. There is not many broadleaf weeds, air quote weeds that I would choose after I would choose ryegrass. I would choose any broadleaf weed that I can think of offhand right now when I'm just talking right now than I would ryegrass. It offers nothing except for money in the pocket of the business that bagged it for you. It's bad business. It's deceitful business. It's unethical in my opinion. And it's one of the main reasons why I was asked to leave a booth at the Indiana Deer Expo one year. Um, I was in a company's... uh, a company's booth and I was just walking through. I wasn't really like in the booth, but I was always curious. I love reading seed tags. I love reading, um, you know, what germination date is on the, on the bags. Is this year old seed? Is it two year old seed? Um, when was the test date would indicate that? What are the blends? What's the inert matter in it? What's the seed coating level? All these things I'm always curious of because typically speaking from the name of it, and the company, I can already kind of predict what's there, and I like to kind of play the game, am I right? Is it crap or is it good? And uh, I was in there reading the back of the seed bag or whatever, and this guy happened to be next to me, and um, this was at a big time booth. I'm not even going to hide it. It's not a big deal. Um, I've messaged, and they don't know the story of it, but I know a couple people at big time. And, uh, you know, if they message me about this, I'll be honest with them, but they're going to hear the whole story here, so you don't even need to message me. Um I was in their booth, and they had some seed, some food plot seed mix there. And, I, again, I was reading it, playing the whole, is this going to be crap or not? And this guy next to me started asking me, well, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm just reading the product, the, the, the seed tag label here, because this is how you can genuinely see if it's good seed or not. So he started asking me a couple questions. He's like, well, what's it? Like, what do you mean? Like, can you, can you show me? And he goes, because I've heard really good things and I'm thinking about buying some. And I was like, okay, well, here, and I turn it over and um, I won't say the type of seed or what it was because I have not looked at their seed bags from Big Time in at least two or three years. So it could be different now. But, you know, we went over the inert matter. We went over some of the seed ingredients in there. And I basically was like, look, you know, this is this this is bad seed to me because of the fact that this like so many pound bag of seed is really only 55% actual seed that I'm paying for unnecessary seed coating. It's got seed types in here that I don't even want. So it's actually less than 55% of the seed that I even want. So I'm not buying, I'd rather go and make my own or buy from any of the other companies that when you read the seed tag 
has much better high quality seed in it and I'm getting more bang for my buck. This is just purely a mix that looks attractive. It's going to grow a green area on your, you know, given the weather cooperates, it's going to grow a green area on it, but it's really just to pad the pockets of this company. And that was when I was interrupted. A gentleman at the booth came up to me. He was like, that's enough. We don't need you in here. You need to leave. And I was like, I, what, what do you mean? Like, I, I was just answering questions. We're having a discussion. And, and he was like, you're clearly with another company. You need to get out of here. And I was like, well, I'm not with another company, but I'm not here to also start any problems. So, you know, it's whatever. I'll leave. But you shouldn't be afraid of people reading your products. And he goes, we're not afraid of people reading our products. We're afraid of people like you reading it for them. And it just never really sat well with me. So I vacated it. But getting back to the issue on hand is, you know, they chose to put and build, put in the seeds that were in there. And they chose to build it with the inert matter, the seed coatings and the seed types. They chose to do that. It's not my choice. But it's my choice of whether I want to spend my money on it. And that's what I think a lot of people need to do. You need to actually do the research. You need to read seed tags. You need to actually look at the germination rate. Look at the testing dates. Look at the seed types. Look them up. Ask around if you have to. Don't ask the company because obviously they're going to have some biasness towards it to where they can probably justify and explain why they put certain things in. I've heard people even justify putting ryegrass in stuff. It doesn't make it right. It just means it's explainable for them. So I just recommend that people really educate themselves on buying good seed or bad seed because it really can be the difference between a thick, lush, successful food plot or halfway there. Um, just don't have blind faith in any type of, of, of seed. Um, just because... Joe Schmo, who kills big deer, you know, uses X brand, does not mean it's good. It does not mean the brand is good. There are people out there in the industry that do not give a crap. They don't care for one second if what they're promoting is actually good or not. It is merely putting money in their pockets or building relationships for them. The genuineness of it does not exist. It's not there. So just don't, don't, perp, don't choose to live inside of a lie. So just educate yourself, read stuff, and that'll help you. So um, the next thing on the list was actually something that I should have probably talked about when it came to time of plantings, but that's improper planting depths and rate um you know one of the most common mistakes when it comes to the rate of seeding for me it comes with brassica plots and it's funny guys will post a picture of their brassica plot in like mid-september and be like oh my gosh this is the greatest seed ever look at this ah uh, there's a couple last year from <laughs> from a seed company that's inside of indiana a good friend of mine, a guy that I, I would I would break bread with and, and share a beer with, you know, he was he was sharing his food plots. He's like, oh, my gosh, look at this. It's so they're so lush. They're so amazing. This seed is blah, blah, blah. And it is incredible. And I'm looking at it like you are going to be complaining about having no bulbs at all. Because there is no spacing between those plants. Like, I'm just thinking in my head, like, this is going to come back on. And I, I can remember because, you know, we were in December-ish, and I was like, 
man, I haven't seen so-and-so post anything about his food plot. So I shot him a text, and I was like, so, hey, how are your brassica plots doing? You know, how big are those, the turnips and stuff? We're getting ready to enter the winter. And he goes, I don't have a single thing bigger than a ping pong ball. And I've been there. I've been there both because of the years that I've had, planning them too late, which is what happened last year. But I've also hit the jackpot and and seed rate and weather and such to where I've had... I had some turnips, guys, one year that I kid you not, I am not exaggerating that there was probably a handful of them that grew to the size of a volleyball. But there was, you would you were very hard-pressed to find a, a purple-top turnip in my plot that was not the size of a softball or bigger. You know, two fists together. It was, you know, I, that that that's the years that I... Man, I'm like, ah, oh, I hit the seed rate perfect. But the funny thing is, when you're talking about it, and when you're looking at the seed rate, it feels like you didn't plant them thick enough when they're growing until their tops get nice and big. And then you're looking out there and you've got, you know, six to 10 inch leaves that fill in that entire plot. And you might have a foot between turnip bulbs. So you got to hit that. Right, it's tough for me to do that now because the deer have really learned they love, love, love brassica greens. My deer used to leave them alone for the most part. They would eat the bulbs and the tops would just kind of die. Now it's like the does have started figuring out they love them and they've taught their young. And now I've got deer just devouring the radish tops by Halloween and they're gone. So I've got a one I got to plant earlier. I got to fertilize even though that's like a dirty word to some people these days, I got to fertilize to try to boost their growth rate quicker to try to compete with it. Um, but yeah, improper planting rate. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to overseed, um, you know, some plant, some plots, you know, if you, if you're doing a solid cereal grain plot, um, yeah, you could overseed it for the nutrients that are there. And it may not grow to its full potential or full nutritional value, but it's it's kind of hard, in my opinion, to overseed cereal grains if that's the main part of your your plot. You know, I've I, that's why you'll hear a lot of guys like me and Jeff Sturgis and others say, you know, throw 200, 250 pounds per acre down, even after you've already got the plot established and we're getting ready to head into October, middle of September, throw that down, get that lush green carpet of growth growing down on the, the sub level of that food plot. It's a way to save your food plot, but it's also a way to thicken it up and provide a new level of growth. Um, clover is also one that I think is kind of hard. It will kind of self-eliminate if, you know, certain plants inside there, if there's too many plants per per acre, if you will. I've noticed that clover kind of begins to choke itself out and it'll the, 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 the stronger plants will survive, if you will, survival of the fittest type thing. Um, but along with all of this, don't necessarily focus on rate, but focus on depth. Um, getting the proper depth of seed planting can be very crucial, especially it is it is it is far more important if you're planting into a tilled, disked um, dirt. You know, if you if you're if if you're drilling seed in, you just got to calibrate the seed, the the drill just right, and you're fine. You can just set it and forget it. Um, if you're broadcasting into a no-till type setup, you're going to up your rate, obviously, 
So the rate that we talked about, you know, I know a lot of guys that say if you're, if you're going to do a broadcast methodology, whether that's like mowing, you know, throw and mow, um, uh, I can't think of a lot of other, but if you're just, or if you, you know, lightly disc, or if you use herbicide, or if you use a crimper where you seed and then you crimp over it, um, you're going to up your rate because your germination survival rate's not going to be quite as high. They say most guys will say 10 to 20% higher. Um, you know, if you, if you're thinking about that in, uh, clover type seed, you're just shy of 10 acres or 10 pounds per acre, typically your rate. So if you're trying to do a no-till broadcast with like clover seed, you're probably going to be looking at adding a pound. Um, brassicas are going to be a little less than a pound per acre that you're going to add if you're doing a no-till approach. And you got to remember those brassica seeds are tiny and they can go a long way. So depending on the seed rate recommended for them, you might even only be adding a quarter of a pound to a half a pound per acre. Um, I don't have many acre plots. I have a few and altogether I have multiple acres, but um, most of the time you guys know I'm not dealing with large food plots. However, I'm going to be doing an expansion project this year on a few spots and hopefully that goes well, but keep depth in mind. Um, you know, and we go back to when you're doing, when it's, when it's not a no-till practice, you got to get that depth right because of the chance of, of, of weather. And, um, you know, if you over, if you, if you shove a seed too deep, it won't have the ability to actually break the surface and then begin to grow. So you just got to pay really close attention to that, especially, you know, I'd rather go lighter or, or uh, shallower than too deep um, because the seed still has a chance to live even if you plant it more shallow than recommended. And then some seeds are best, especially if it's like a fluffy dirt, just broadcast it let rain or roll it or, you know, call the packet, but don't really churn it up much because you can shove those tiny seeds, those clovers and brassicas way too deep, really quick and easy. So you got to keep that in mind as well. Improper herbicide use was another final note that I had on this that I wanted to kind of touch on. This is something that I think a lot of people um, have gotten better about. I'm not a herbicide whiz kid at all. Um, I understand that clethodum allows me to kill grasses, and 2,4-D is broadleafs, and there's 2,4-D-B, um, kills various strands. But then I yield to a lot of my farming friends when it comes to like, okay, this is what I got growing. This is what I need to do. But, you know, if you get into certain plants like rutabagas or if you're, you're planting um, sugar beets and such, there are certain chemical applications that you really want to avoid using on that or else you're going to terminate your crop. But there are chemical applications that you can not touch it and kill what other items you don't want in your plot. But the one thing I like to explain when it comes to food plots and herbicide use and such is um, I'm growing more and more on the side of things where clethodum is one of my main things that I use because there's not, now unless I have cereal grains in my food plots, but if I'm doing like a brassica plot is a good example, um, and I may try to do this this year, if I plant brassicas early, I could clethodem treat that plot for just Johnson grass and any other grasses that are coming up that I don't want. I could do that in early September. And then I could come back in mid-September and plant 200, 250 pounds per acre of rye, cereal rye, which is a grass, 
and the clethodem would kill, but I'm already done with my treatment. So um, timing of our chemical applications can be crucial. Understanding what affects the soil and what is only um, absorbed through the leaves of plants or the greens of plants. You know, there's certain certain things like atrazine and cymazine and things of that nature. A lot of these things actually um, are still active in the soil for a while. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you have to kind of time your applications after the use of those. So just make sure you really read those labels. If in doubt, even email or call the manufacturer. There are numbers all over those things. And believe it or not, you pick up the phone and you call them. They do answer. And you can get some great information that way. So um, I'm not necessarily the person to ask for that. But those are kind of the overview of food plot failures and things we need to keep in mind. Um, you know, uh, for food plot failures when it comes to weather or timing of plantings or bad seed or just anything of those things that could catch up to us each year. Um, this is one of the reasons why I like to have two to 300 pounds of, of cereal grain on hand. Um, cereal rye, uh, if, you, if all you can get is wheat, do it. You know, even if all you can get is oats, do it. But you can't plant oats as late and it, it dies quicker. But it sounds crazy, but, you know, I actually have 200 pounds of cereal rye up in my garage right now that was uh, emergency for last year. It'll probably get planted this spring somewhere, probably in those sections where I expand the food plots where I just want to get something down, get something growing, and I'll terminate it come the fall when I kind of try to restart and kind of really start those areas out. Um, the final thing for food plot failures is highlighted, and I almost skipped it, and that is uh, getting a soil test. This will tell you a lot about the soil that you are about to plant into, and it will allow you to have realistic expectations. It'll allow you to direct yourself in how you're about to build that soil back up to the optimum level of being able to produce a good, vibrant, lush, nutritional, dense food plot. And there's, as you've heard me even share with um, a discussion with Al James, but also you've heard me discuss, you know, you can go through uh, uh, artificial fertilizers or you can go the natural way and trying to build the soil up and you'll eventually affect the, the, the OM or the organic matter of the soil. And as you, the carbon and nitrogen balance, um, you can get as technical with all this as you want. And I encourage you, listen back through the episodes and, and listen to that Al James episode. It's a great introductory and we talk about a lot of resources that you can go to to learn more. I, I, I'm not the scientist of the soil type mindset personally, um, but I greatly respect those that are. And I, and, I, and we're, we're dabbling more and more in things of that nature, but just keep that in mind. Soil test, even if you're, even if you are a natural soil builder, or even if you're an artificial soil builder, or if you do both and you're kind of in that interchange between which way do you want to go, a soil test will help direct you in both of those ways. So I encourage you to do that. The final thing is kind of a summary of the beginning of when I started this podcast. I talked about you have to keep in mind the flow of the property and the architecture of the food plot locations and the things in that you know, we talk about, and I've talked about, hinge cutting to control movement patterns for side structure, um, keeping in mind the location of bedding areas in relation to your food sources on and in around your property and locations elsewhere, enhancing things that the deer already want to do. 
every property I've walked on has tremendous potential. And that potential can either be enhanced or it can be eroded by the decisions that we make. And food plot location is perhaps one of the most crucial because people think about it first when they really should think about, especially on the small property levels. The small level properties, you've got to have cover and security for the deer to make them. You already are you already are fighting an uphill battle having not a lot of land. So let's give them land that's limited. Let's give most of it to them to where they're there during the daylight hours, sleeping during the day, getting up and stretching, eating natural brows and food sources that grow on trims and brows and forbs and such, and then providing supplemental food, but not necessarily destinational food. But everybody wants to go to that route. And so you have to think back if you're going to, okay, if I want a food plot here, how is that going to impact everything else about my property? Because that's fine. If you want to make, <clears throat> if you want to make the decision first, where your food's going to be, you then have to backtrack from there and think about depth of cover of your property, how that relates to the travel tendencies of the property already. How is that possibly going to change the travel tendencies of the property? And if it starts making a lot of negative tendencies or if it starts fighting against the curve that the deer already want to do, you might have just made a massive mistake. But as long as you think about that beforehand, you won't actually jump to that conclusion in your implementation. Um, the good news is, if you're one of those people out there that put in a ton of food first, I'm talking just massive amounts of food, and the food's still standing, it's still up, even now we're into March and such, the good thing is you now just have a blank slate, and we can begin to trim and provide more cover, and we'll talk about that in the future episodes. But I don't want to bog this episode down with too much stuff. I wanted to be very pinpoint, talk about food plot failures, touch on the main ones that impact the most people, and then also get you thinking, if you're looking at expanding or putting in new food, you got to consider the architectural layout of it and how it interacts with the rest of your property. Because if you're not doing that, you're just being lazy, and you could be actually detrimentally impacting your property and discouraging security, discouraging the safe feeling that deer have traversing your property by implementing that food plot that you're thinking about. So just keep that in mind. That is all I have for this episode. We're right around a half hour, which is kind of my goal uh, moving forward unless I have a guest on. So I just want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning back in. I'm going to try to continue to produce content. However, I have shared some of my venting and frustration on social media. Many of you guys have seen that. But it doesn't mean I don't want to help. It, it's the main reason why Small Like Your Hunting started, and it's the only reason it's still surviving, is I just think this is such an easy con easy thing to do and to help people. I think we overthink it, we overshoot it, and there's a lot of small acre landowners and hunters out there that think they have to spend massive amount of dollars. Yes, it helps at times, but they just they're overthinking this and they're going to people that just cannot relate to small property refinement. And uh, I want you to have a resource that you don't have to drop a dime into. 
and you don't get to and you and you don't have to listen to people trying to capture a dime because I'm not. You're not going to hear sponsorships here. You're not going to hear uh, advertisement here or anything like that. So if you like that, if this is something that you're you, you want to hear, share it with people. You know, uh, like, subscribe, share it. If you don't want to, that's fine too. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything for me. So this is Ty. Uh, just incredibly humbled that you listened to the entire episode and that you continue to desire more. Um, it mean, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So to each of you out there listening, to your families, to your properties, to everything, I wish you nothing but the best. And I hope to hear back from you next time. And uh, we'll chat white tails then as well. And uh, thank you for the encouragement that you provide me. And yeah, God bless and good luck out there.